Due to the age of these recorded messages, there are parts of low quality that are hard to understand. We have done our best to eliminate these and make it as clear as possible. Now this evening we take up where we left off last week. I have just put on the top of the board a very sketchy diagram indeed, just showing uh, roughly uh, the uh, growth of the salt. I thought perhaps after last week talking about Solomon and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and uh, the captivity and the exiles, for some people it might uh, possibly be confusing though. But there it is on the board with approximate date. Um, so if you've got some idea of the uh, um, time uh, over which the uh, Psalter grew. You remember that the very earliest Psalms that we have in this collection, the Psalms of Moses 90 and 91, and then, of course, the groups, the earliest groups we've got are da groups of David psalms. We call them uh, groups of Davidic psalms. They were probably, at the beginning, uh, little hymn books, either connected with certain choirs of the temple or with certain schools of the prophets. They were the basis or the nucleus of our thought. The, the, the book of psalms we have today grew out of those uh, hymn books. It's very, very fascinating, really. Uh, if only you had someone who, who could speak to you more eloquently and more capably than I. It's a fascinating study, really, the compilation of the, of the Psalter, because of its very real proximity to our modern, the way many of our modern hymn books have been compiled. Um, growing from a, a small collection here, another collection there, take the Baptist books, for instance, began with certain collections centered in certain Baptist churches, because uh, in those days, Baptist church government was um, uh, the, stressed very much the independence of each congregation. The result there came a day when they, they brought together
um, unreliable, and for the most, in, in most cases, um, fabrication. Uh, however, the tide has turned, and a much saner council holds the day. And it has been pointed out, and I think only rightly, that these psalm titles were faithfully reproduced in the Septuagint version. And they were so faithfully reproduced by translators who obviously did not fully understand the meaning of the terms in them, with the result that because of their veneration for them, and their veneration for their antiquity, they felt they did not feel at liberty to change them. Now, all famous scholarship today takes that as its starting point. The fact that these titles were in existence when the oldest translation of the Old Testament was made. That is at least 150 BC. Prior to that, these titles were in existence. And now, of course, the tide is turning and the titles are being investigated. There are many who believe that these titles actually go right back almost to the composition, if not in many cases, to the actual composition of the psalm. <clears throat> now, that immediately uh, brings us on to a new ground on this whole question of the authorship of individual psalms. For it is in these titles that we get the names attached to the psalms. We cannot, of course, um, completely rely upon them. They're not inspired scripture as the psalms themselves are, but we certainly can respect them as um, embodying a very old and ancient tradition connected with each psalm in, in, to which you find a title he fits. Now, whatever we might feel about these titles, there are some very interesting things that we shall discover. We can't spend the season, we shall not spend time on them, we're going to next week, the Lord willing. But um, that at any rate is, the, is laying a foundation stone for, for a lot more that we're going to say about the titles of Psalms. We find that most of the authors, the, the titles, uh, and of course names of authors, are attached to pre-exilic psalms, which is an interesting feature again. It speaks to the antiquity of these titles. They are mainly attached to pre-exilic psalms. Three, in book one and book two of the five books of the source, you will find more titles than any of the other books, almost again. So we immediately come to the conclusion that these titles perhaps are much older than was supposed some years ago. Now I have listed down very simply um, the ratio of authors. Moses, one psalm is ascribed to Moses. In actual fact we know that there are two because it's Psalm 90 and 91 uh, were originally one psalm and were ascribed to Moses. Um, David, we find 73 psalms ascribed to David. Solomon, we find two psalms ascribed to him. Uh, then Asaph, we find 12 psalms. Asaph, of course, I expect, I trust most of you know who Asaph is. He was one of the great leaders 
of the, of the temple worship in the days of David. Then the sons of Korah, we find ten sons, uh, um, bear that the name of the sons of Korah. We shall speak about that later in the and the Ezra, I and Esam are to each of them is ascribed one psalm. So you see that according to these psalm titles, over two thirds of the psalms have got a name attached to them. Supposedly, uh, the author. And in many cases, but in most cases, uh, there is no sufficient ground for actually discarding in other words, the most of us, by the way, conducted all the round, it has been proved by many real sound religions that all the evidence within the song, within the actual sound itself, is in favor uh, of the uh, authorship as found in the title. Then we have one other interesting thing for those of you who are interested in this. You will note, first of all, that therefore from this we discover that David is responsible for something like a of His name is attached to 73, almost half 75 has been sacrificed, but 73 times are described to David. And then another very interesting point for those of you who like to, to know something like that. Psalm 137 is ascribed in the history to Jeremiah. Somehow or other, in the Masoretic text, that title has been lost. But in the Septuagint, you'll find that Psalm 137 is ascribed to Jeremiah, and Psalm 146, 147 is ascribed to Zechariah and Haggai. So there again you have some very interesting points if you want to read the last of that. Particularly 146 and 147 is a fascinating study in the, in the life of the, of the time of the Holocaust. And the ancient Jewish tradition ascribed to 119 to Ezra the scribe. Think of anyone in the whole Old Testament. However, that's Jewish tradition for what it's worth. Well, I think we'll leave at that the authorship of the individual of the Now, let us move on to another point before we go on to literally side of it. What is, what was the original use? What were these psalms brought together for? What was the real use? To what purpose were they served? I think we've already mentioned the fact that nearly all these psalms uh, were used in the worship of the temple. The source was almost It 
you remember in the days of the Lord Jesus this was so, in the synagogue services, uh, even today, you have first part of the law read, and then part of, of the psalm sung. They were always looked upon as corresponding to each other. There are a number of psalms that we could note this evening. I haven't put them on the board. You'll have to just note them down in black and white. For if any of you would like to read them in this night. For instance, there are Sabbath psalms. There are a whole group of Sabbath psalms. You will find them from Psalm 92 to Psalm 100. A whole group of psalms connected with the Sabbath. Then you will find another psalm that was always associated, became a great favourite, I suppose, like some of our hymns would be, um, was Psalm 145. This psalm was sung at all the great feasts and was like, I suppose, rather like we would sing a doxology. Um, somehow or other, it was the closing peon of praise uh, um, of any great town. When the great uh, concourse was finally gathered, they often gave expression to their united worship in the singing of Psalm 145. So that Psalm 145 came to be associated with all the people, which is remarkable. Not only Passover, but what we now call Whitsun, uh, First Fruit, or the, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Then again, the Day of Atonement, Psalm 130, from the very beginning, was associated with the Day of Atonement. If you read Psalm 130, I think you will see how very wonderfully and fittingly it describes the Day of Atonement. The Passover has, of course, a large number of, of psalms that have been associated with it and were always read. Psalm 135 is a Passover hymn. Psalm 68 is a Passover psalm. Psalm 44 is a Passover psalm. You want to read these psalms in the light of what we are saying. Psalm 59 is a Passover psalm. And also Psalm 79 is a Passover psalm. And of course the group that is best known of all for forever being associated with the Passover is the little group that we call the Egyptian Hallel, or the Great Hallel. It comes from its beginning, praise ye the Lord, Hallel, Hallelujah. Um, 113, 114, 115, 116, 171. The group of Psalms from 113 to 118. These are still cite today at every commemoration of the Passover in every Jewish home. No Passover is ever celebrated without the reciting of sing of the Hallelujah. It was this that the Lord Jesus sang at the Last Supper. When it said, it said that they sang, after they sang the hymn, they went and down to the Garden of Gethsemane. At the Passover, the, the, then the bringing in of the Lord's table. Then the Feast of Tabernacles has a group of psalms associated with it, and we just selected one or two uh, Psalm 80, Psalm 83, 
Psalm 7 are all associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the great autumn festival of the year. And Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 were always sung at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are those beautiful little psalms, the songs of the degrees. They were always sung at that time of the year. Now from the Septuagint we learn something else. We learn that there was a daily psalm sung uh, for each day of the week, every week. Uh, this is the table that we have discovered. On Saturday, they always sang in the temple Psalm 92. On Sunday, they sang Psalm 24. On Monday, Psalm 48. On Tuesday, Psalm 82. On Wednesday, Psalm 94. On Thursday, Psalm 81. And on Friday, Psalm 93. So you see, um, how uh, the Psalter was used under the Old Covenant. It was used daily. It was used for routine things, for routine worship, for want of a better word. Um, for the day-to-day -day service of God's people, the humdrum service of God's people, the sort of just going through, uh, as it were, the meeting, day in and day out, habitually. Then when there was a great national commemoration, such as the dedication of the house of God, the bringing up of the ark into the house of the Lord, there was a hymn, a psalm, that had been written and composed for that occasion and was found within the center. Or if you wanted to come particularly to, to make a thank offering well, you come and you took Psalm 100. That has in the title this little word for thank offering. So whenever you wanted to uh, come to the Lord as thank offering, perhaps you paid something and they sang Psalm 100. I'm afraid money was always associated with the temple, unfortunately, uh, under the old covenant, and that was one of the things that the Lord in the end called it a den of thieves and robbers. Well, so much for the use of the Psalter. I think you can see from that that it was a remarkable collection. Someone has said, I don't know how many of you know anything about a collection of hymns that we have in this country called the Albany Collection of Hymns. There were hymns by William Cowper and John Newton. And they were, they expressed pers personal devotion and prayer. We have some of them, we sing some of them today uh, in our hymn book. Well, there are some, there are psalms in the Psalter which can only be called Albany type psalms. They are intensely personal, intensely intimate, and intensely devotional. So you see, the Psalter has a wide range of use. Uh, right from the great national days to peculiar occasions, to routine service and worship daily, uh, to personal devotion or feeling. A little later on, I trust, if we only have the time, we shall um, discover that some of the titles to the Psalms give us a clue to the meaning of the Psalms. Uh, and uh, we shall perhaps be able to understand a little bit more how a person found their way around uh, in the Psalms. 
So now we come to the literary and musical aspects of the Psalter. Um, I'm afraid we're not following the usual um, pattern that we take in the study of these books, you know, first the authorship and date and then um, the key and so on. We've got to follow a different pattern for the Psalter. And the second thing that I want to consider this evening, at least begin to consider this evening, is the literary and musical aspects of the Psalms. Much, much more deep and revealing uh, a study than I think most of us would realize. <clears throat> well, the first thing, and I think we shall not get farther than it this evening, are the, the literary aspects. Let's leave the musical aspects until next week because they will take an evening in themselves and we will seek to discuss to the psalm title with the musical aspects. But this evening we will just look at the literary aspects of the, of the psalm. Hebrew poetry is mostly what we call lyric poetry, or lyrical poetry. That is, it is a poem, a poetry, that was um, composed originally to be sung to the last, or more generally, to be accompanied by instrumental music. Lyric poetry is... Um, unique in, in the sense that it is always accompanied by something, uh, not just recited. And Hebrew poetry has this general characteristic, because it doesn't, it doesn't hold good in everything, it's got exceptions, but for the most part, Hebrew poetry is lyrical in its nature. Another thing that characterizes lyrical poetry is that it is subjective. What do we mean by being subjective? We mean that the poet sees everything from inside of himself. He never sees anything outside himself. He's not objective. He always sees everything as to how it happened inside of himself, how it has evolved inside of himself, how he sees it, how it has affected him. Most of us, I'm afraid, are subjective. Uh, in that way. Well, the Psalms, the Psalms, are lyrical. That is, they are subjective. They are the expression of the poet's own thoughts, feelings, experiences, emotions about everything and anything. And he only ever brings in other things insofar as they affect him. When he looks at the heavens, it's always from his own eyes. When he looks at the stars, it's always through his own thoughts. Do you see what I mean? He hardly ever sees anything really in an objective way. Now this characterizes lyrical poetry. Uh, one other small point we might make about lyrical poetry is that it's not only subjective, it's not only meant to be accompanied with instrumental music, but usually it is shorter. Its stanzas are shorter and uh, clearer uh, than, for instance, epic poetry. Um, epic poetry is, in, is quite different. It's the opposite to lyric poetry. Um, epic uh, poetry is objective. Um, epic poems are always describing heroes. Nothing to do with it. He doesn't see it himself at all. He's describing in detail some hero or some national event right outside of himself. Now, one or two psalms come very near to epic poetry. 
Some of the great psalms that describe, describe the Red Sea, the crossing over, the Exodus, the Passover, the going through the, the wilderness and so on, um, come very near to epic poetry, but they are still sufficiently different not to come into the category of true epic poetry. Hebrew poetry, then, is, strictly speaking, lyrical. And then I might also point out that psalms were meant to be accompanied by the psaltery. Um, of course, only recently I discovered what a psaltery is. And then when I was much younger, I thought it was only to do with salt. Um, but um, the psaltery is a musical instrument. A, a lyre, like a lyre. Um, psalms were originally composed to be uh, sung to the accompaniment of the psaltery. Now, you might be interested to know that the psaltery is the instrument played. Psalming is the term that is used for playing psaltery, and the psalm is the com composition that is sung to it. Can you remember that? It will help you understand a little more about the psaltery. The psaltery is the instrument used, psalming is actually uh, playing that instrument, and the psalm is the composition sample. Someone said that if we'd never had the psaltery, we wouldn't have had any psalms. Because in actual fact, the psaltery preceded the psalm. And you remember, I think it was, the name has gone out of my mind, that someone, I think it was Elisha, who, before he would prophesy, uh, asked them to bring someone to play the psaltery to him. And as they played, so he prophesied. Um, it was so with David. It's undoubted that as he played the harp, so these, com these psalms somehow uh, originated in his heart and spirit. So you see, the whole, this whole study is fascinating. Um, without, without music, there wouldn't have been any psalms. Without musical instruments, psalms would have never uh, come into being as we know them. Um, it, I think, to some, it might be quite an eye-opener to recognize uh, just that fact. I know it's the old covenant, but it's, a, it's an interesting fact straight away. As we've already said, I believe, last um, uh, week, uh, Hebrew poetry knows nothing of rhyme. Not like Western poetry, which is based on rhyme and meter, but um, Hebrew poetry knows nothing of rhyme, and it hardly has any real metrical arrangement. I said, I believe, some weeks ago, when we were dealing with these whole books, that there was something like a metrical arrangement, but we can only say that in the loosest way possible. Uh, there's nothing like our Western idea of meter uh, whatsoever. In, in Hebrew poetry. Um, it knows nothing of rhyme. It knows nothing, really, of what we would call uh, a metrical arrangement. It has something that approaches to a metrical arrangement, but is not quite what we know as uh, meter. Its uh, essential characteristic is rhythm. In this, it differs from nearly all other poetry. It, it is uh, essentially characterized by rhythm. And, now listen to this, 
by the rhythm of, or the balance, the rhythmical balance of clauses. You just think about that for a moment. The rhythmical balance of clauses. Setting so many sounds against so many sounds. A rhythm. Now, Hebrew was a terse language. Um, it was it was terse and uh, uh, vigorous. And the beauty of Hebrew poetry lay in its terseness and vigor. So, you see, rhythm uh, is the basis of Hebrew poetry. Not rhyme, nor really sound, and certainly not meter, but this whole question of rhythm. And the rhythmical balance of clauses. Now, this rhythmical balance of clauses is called parallelism. Uh, there's a lot more to it, of course, than that. But first of all, that's what it's called, parallelism. Having on one line a certain rhythm, and then on uh, the next line, parallel to it, the same rhythm. The same clauses uh, balancing the first in the second line. So we come to this thing that we call parallelism, terrible word, um, but absolutely basic to any understanding of the Psalms. And I do hope that all of you are going to get hold of it because I, well, really, I just launched the very thought of, uh, of talking about this business tonight. Um, and yet, you see, we need to understand it because if we understand it, we've got a simple key to the psalm. Very simple little key to an understanding of the psalm. Um, at least uh, on the literary side. Uh, you see, this feature, this feature that we call parallelism, sounds to Western ears very stilted and formal. Very stilted and formal. Um, but in actual fact, in Hebrew, it is remarkably vigorous and remarkably spontaneous. And another interesting fact is that the um, Hebrew poets or writers never allowed themselves to be overchanged to the mechanical rules of their poetry. So that we find thousands of exceptions uh, to the rules. Um, there's a basic rule that they observe. And in one psalm, for instance, and if you take this, what we say away tonight and start to read the psalm for the light of it, you'll, you'll have a headache before very long, because you'll discover that the psalmist is not actually, although basically he's keeping to the principle, he is free from it. He's not chained to it. Uh, that, I think, is something really that is rather remarkable. And we, I think we ought also to note uh, one other very wonderful thing. And I believe this is really wonderful discovery to me anyway. It is simply this, that Hebrew poetry, because of this feature, suffers less in translation than any other form of poetry. All poetry that depends on rhyme or metrical arrangement loses something, generally speaking, in translation. But Hebrew poetry, because of the rhythms of things, is the only kind of poetry that can be translated into almost every language in the world and still in some way retain something of its earlier rhythm. You see, you look at the Psalms. 
The Lord my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, and so on. It, is, it doesn't matter what language you get it in. There is um, there is something that uh, a balance. You can do it without without having to um, distort the meaning and without having to pervert uh, things. You haven't got to take great license to get it. Anyone who's had any experience of tra- trying to put um, a hymn from another nation into their own language will understand immediately uh, what we're talking about. Um, it, it's no easy thing to take an original composition and then put it into uh, the, um, the sort of uh, good understanding, a good translation, at the same time, good poetry. I was given a little while ago to a brother needs hymns to try and put into, into uh, shall we say, English uh, poetry. And uh, I, I just gave up the attempt. It seemed that one was so mutilating um, the, uh, the original uh, that one felt no further liberty to, to try and do it. Of course, no doubt, there are some with a remarkable forgive to can do it. But my point is, you see, that Hebrew poetry, because of, of the nature, uh, its very nature, is given to translation and does not lose uh, what um, other forms and kinds of national poetry do. I think that's an evidence of God's hand. God, I believe, knew at the very beginning uh, with the Psalter in his whole uh, molding of a nation's life and culture, he knew that 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 was going to reach to the end of the earth and be translated into the most unbelievable tongue. Uh, when you think of the Psalms today, translated into thousands of languages, uh, and yet still bearing the essential message without mm. mutilation or perversion, I think it's a remarkable thing. Basically, parallelism is not only characterized by rhythm, that is the rhythmical balance of clauses, as we call it, but it is also characterized by the balance of thought over against thought. So you've got two things in parallelism. First you've got a rhythm balanced over against it, and then you have uh, uh, a thought balanced over against another thought. Um, <clears throat> there are three main forms of parallelism. I might Hey, the scholars have had great fun in discovering uh, really so many forms of parallelism that I really think that, uh, their imagination might have run uh, uh, wild. I'll just run through a few names in those. But there are three main forms of parallelism. One is called synonymous, the second is called antithetic, and the third is called synthetic. We will explain them in a moment. But they are the three main forms of um, parallelism that you will find uh, in Hebrew poetry. Now, of course, I can only just remember a few, but there are things like iterative, uh, whatever that means, iterative um, parallelism, climacteric parallelism, alternate parallelism, responsoric parallelism, introverted parallelism, emblematic parallelism, um, I can't think of others. But when I came to look at them all and study them all, I thought, well, really, 
I looked at what they called emblematic poetry, and quite frankly, it looked to me like synonymous poetry. And when I got back to dear old Rotherham and one or two others of the more saner expositors, I discovered that they had also washed their hands of a whole lot of the more fanciful uh, forms of parallelism. Um, there are undoubtedly a great number of varieties of parallelism, but there are three main branches. The first is synonymous, the second is antithetic, and the third is synthetic. Now let's just look at a few examples of these. First of all, before you look at the scriptures, we've got one example here on the book. <coughs> this is called synonymous parallelism, and is the basis of all other parallelism. Synonymous parallelism means that the second line repeats the first line in other words. The same thought in different words enforced. So, here you've got it. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. Well, if you were to wipe that out, you've still got the thought. Let us cast their cords from us. Wipe that out, you've still got it. Let us break their bonds asunder. You see, it's the poet putting one thought in two ways. Synonymous parallelism. Now, all the psalms are, are almost... Uh, built on this very simple uh, feature. Uh, we've looked at Psalm 2 and uh, verse 3. Now look at Psalm 24. Of course, we, we'd be here months if we were to look at every instance of synonymous parallelism in the thought, but it's just abounds everywhere. If you want to study, you take it home and through this next week you start to look at the different forms you can find. Psalm 24. First one, verse two. Now listen. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Synonymous parallelism. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Synonymous parallelism. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, I know what some people are going to say, they're going to say there's a difference. Yes, there is a difference. But you see, you must remember that the Psalter is poetry. You must not build doctrine on poetry. Um, this is real. It's been inspired of the Holy Spirit. And there is not one part of it that we could, we could uh, say is, is uh, wrong or untruthful or, or uh, so on. But the point is, we have got to remember that the Holy Spirit has used the poet here. Okay. So you've got this wonderful thing called parallelism, Hebrew poetry. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. parallelism. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, I know what some people are going to say, they're going to say there's a difference. Yes, there is a difference. But you see, you must remember that the Psalter is poetry. You must not build doctrine on poetry. Um, this is real. It's been inspired of the Holy Spirit. And um, there is not one part of it that we could, we could uh, say is, is uh, wrong or untruthful or or so on. But the point is, we have got to remember that the Holy Spirit has used the poet here. Yes. 
So you've got this wonderful thing called parallelism, Hebrew poetry. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. You see, he has established it, he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the flood. Synonymous parallelism. Now, if you want to go on looking through all the scriptures to find out more forms of synonymous parallelism, you do so. The second we come to is antithetic parallelism, and this means that the second line contrasts the first. It is a different form of parallelism, antithetic parallelism. The second line, a contradiction or an op in opposition to the first. Now let's look at some of these. First Psalm 1, verse 6. Listen to this. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Antithetic parallelism. See? The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Now you look at Psalm 37, verse 9. Of course, again, the Psalter was filled with antithetic parallelism. Uh, you might also remember when we come to the book of Proverbs, we shall discover that most of the Proverbs are built on this poetry, you see. So and so and so and so and so and so to the wise, but so and so and so and so to the foolish. See, all, all the time, the, uh, the antithesis. 37, verse 9. For evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the land. Evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the land. Antithetic parallelism. Then there's synthetic parallelism. Now, that is different to the other two in this, that the second line uh, adds to the first line. It is a new thought developing out of the first line. So you make a statement in the first, and the second line is the development of it, a new thought developing out of the first, synthetic parallelism. Now, the best example of that that I could find is in chapter 19. I'm sorry, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7. Now, listen to this form of parallelism. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Synthetic parallelism. Now we could go again all the way through the Psalter, just bringing case after case of what we call synthetic parallelism. Uh, it is the development of a new thought out of the first, in the first line. Now, just so that you might see one or two of the others very quickly, and I won't spend this dreadful thing called climacteric uh, parallelism. It just means something growing to a climax. If you look at Psalm 93, you've got a very good example of it. Psalm 93, verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their way. 
Do you see it's going up and up and up? So it's leading you up to a climax, up to a crisis. And what is the crisis? The crisis above the voices of many waters, above the mighty breakers of the sea, the voice of the Lord, the Lord on high, is mighty. Do you see it's climactic, parallel? It's leading up to a crisis. Then you've got responsory parallelism. That means appeal and answer. Now that was because we shall discover with trust next week as we get to it, that um, uh, these psalms were to be sung by congregation and choir, or two choirs answering each other. Um, they, call, they call it antiphonal things. Uh, backwards and forwards they sang to each other. Um, uh, well, that's called responsory parallelism. Psalm 115 is an example of it. 9 to 11. See? O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust ye in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. See, you can get it straight away. First of all, the choir singing out, so, 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 and just rather like some state state church. You hear them all singing back. Uh, he is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. So it goes on, you see. Appeal and answer. Appeal and answer. Responsory parallelism. Then there is alternate parallelism. Best seed in 103. Psalm 103. Of course, you must remember that these other forms, these I would call varieties of parallelism, varieties of the three main branches. You will discover, actually, it can be classified under the first three. Alternate, 103, verse 11 and verse 12. For the heavens, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. The first line corresponds to the third and the second to the fourth. Alternate parallelism. You see that? It goes, you'll find it two or three times in Psalm 103. Heavens as high above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. That's called alternate parallelism. Now, as you will have seen, this feature is often found in three lines and four lines. It's not just found simply, and this is where we get, begin to get complicated, in two lines. Here we have two lines, that's a simple form of parallelism. But in actual fact, you can find it in three lines. And in that case, either the first two correspond and the last is different, or the first and the last correspond and the middle one is different, or the first one is different and the last two correspond. Got it? Here you get four lines of parallelism that we've all had in Psalm 103. The first and the third, the third, the first and the third, the second and the fourth correspond. Well, you can see straight away that this whole business of the literary uh, aspects of the Psalms is really a very, very interesting, fascinating study, actually, because it begins to open up a field in revelation, and I trust that the very last study we take on the Psalms will be able to draw some lessons out of all this that I think will knock, if I may use such a colloquial expression, cock eye, some of our rather silly ideas about things God uses. Uh, it's quite obvious that the Lord can use the most mechanical thing. It seems to me it's the attitude towards a uh, thing that is, is the key. 
to whether the Lord can use it or not. Um, here, um, I'd like to say one other thing, and that is that, and this is also a little bit complicated, you will find all forms of parallelism in one psalm. That means that you will not find a psalm is built on uh, synonymous parallelism right way through. You will discover that the first verse is synonymous, the second might be antithetic, the third may be um, synthetic. Then you might discover the first is three lines, the second is two, the third, the third is two, the fourth is three, and so on. And you see, it's a really amazing variety in Hebrew poetry. It's unbelievable. Um, and yet at the same time, um, our Lord has used this structure to put some of the most priceless jewels that we have in, in the Bible. Well, so much for parallelism. Now another great subject, and I trust we shall be able to get to this this evening, acrostics. Now I hope you understand what acrostics means. Uh, it is the method by which the first letter of the alphabet is used at the beginning, consecutively, of each line of a poem. In English, it would be the first would begin with A, the second line B, third line C, fourth line D, fifth line E, and so on, right the way through to the end. Or we may find the first verse. A, second verse B, or it might be standard, first verse A, second, uh, first stanza A, second stanza B, third stanza C, fourth stanza D. That is called acrostic, an acrostic psalm, an acrostic poem. Now, the scripture, strangely enough, uses this uh, amazing method, one would almost call it a, a stultified method, um, uh, in the most remarkable places. For instance, you find quite a number of psalms, there <coughs> are over nine psalms, <coughs> that are acrostic psalms. They are built on this literary technique. That is, not only do we find parallelism as their essential feature and characteristic, but we find this added, almost peculiar feature of acrostic. Proverbs, you find a number of the Proverbs are acrostic, and you find Lamb Book of Lamentations in their inacrostic form. Um, the Psalms, if you want them, that are acrostics are these. to read them sometime during this week. Psalm 9, Psalm 10, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 37, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, Psalm 119, Psalm 145, of course, if you're going to read 119, take time. These acrostic psalms are so composed that each stanza or verse or line begins with, with the consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And um, so these are uh, built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Would you like to see some examples of it? Of course, in our English version, this is one thing we could not uh, uh, put into English, although there have been some very noble attempts to do it. I'm going to show you one on the other side of the board in just one minute. Um, first, if you turn to Psalm 111, 
and 112. Now, just forget, praise ye the Lord, for one moment. This is the first phrase of the psalm. That's not in the acrostic side of it. But beginning with the first line, I will give thanks unto the Lord with my whole heart, going right through to the end, you have the alphabet. This is an acrostic line. That is, every single sentence begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if you count them through, not counting praise the Lord, you will count that there are, if you have a revised version, you will discover that you have there 22 sentences. 112 is exactly the same. These two sounds were, were placed together because they belong to each other. They're twins. Praise ye the Lord, cut that out as far as the acrostics go. Beginning with blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, right the way through to the end, you will discover that uh, um, you've got 22 lines. Will you notice that the last two verses to make up the 22 lines are, the last two verses are composed of three lines each. Interesting, you see. Again, it's a form of parallelism. Then, <clears throat> if you want to verse acrostic psalm, Look at 34. 34. Oh, of course, others. I'm only giving you these examples. 34. You see there are 22 verses there. 22 verses. Each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. <coughs> now, if you look at um, 37, Psalm 37, you will find a strange... Uh, departure here. Every two verses comes under a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And two verses, two sets of verses, have two letters. So that the 40 verses of the psalm are um, compressed uh, into the 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, another remarkable feature. Now Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is absolutely the most singular piece as far as acrostics go, I think, uh, in the whole Bible. Each stanza, each paragraph, there are 22 paragraphs that make up um, uh, Psalm 119. Each one begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But now this is where most of you don't know. Each verse of each stanza begins with the letter of its paragraph. Now there's been a very noble attempt by a German to, uh, to somehow or other put this actually into English. I don't think any Englishman could do it. This is Dalet, or if you look at Psalm 119, um, it is from verse 25. I couldn't get the last part of verse 32 in. So here it is, this is what it would look like if we could have this in English. If we could have the whole of Psalm 119, this is what it would look like. Each paragraph would begin with a letter of the alphabet, and then each verse would begin with the letter of the paragraph. Depressed to the dust is my soul, quicken thou me according to thy word. 
Declared have I to thee my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Declare thou to me the way of thy creatures. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. Dropping is my soul for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to thy words. Deceitful ways remove from me, and grant me thy law graciously. Determined have I upon the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. Deliberately have I stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. Day by day I will run the way. And I can't remember the rest. But that shows you what it would look like in English. You, of course, in our uh, course in English, it looks very stilted, doesn't it, really? It looks a little bit sort of uh, uh, twisted. But in Hebrew, I understand it's full of vigor uh, and love. Um, it's not the least bit stilted or formal, because it, it, it lends itself to uh, Hebrew. So I think you can see straight away that the acrostic method is a somewhat remarkable device. Whoever would have thought that the Holy Spirit could take so organized, so highly complex and organized a method and put into it a gem of his word. Well, you know, apart from anything else, it takes some ingenuity uh, to, to work such a method out, uh, let alone uh, uh, get to, for it to be, uh, to have something worthwhile with it. Well, now we must, we must close, and I want to close on this note this evening so that we can begin next week on the titles and the musical aspects, which are just as interesting. Um, what about the literary description of the psalm? Now, what do I mean by literary description? Well, if you look at the titles of the Psalms, remember those titles we were looking at, you will find certain names. You will find a psalm. Now, in some of your titles, you will see that the word psalm is an italic. That means that the Bible has put it in because it's not in the original. Because the word psalm has come to describe the whole book. But in actual fact, you will find in some cases the word psalm in its technical sense. Then you will find another a psalm. And another praise. A praise. A praise. Not just praise, but a praise. As, as a description, a literary description. Uh, a uh, prayer. Or these strange words, a mictal. Or a masculine. Or Shigai. Now, what do these things mean? You'll find them all in the description, uh, in the title. These descriptions are not fine poetical uh, ones. They're not fine poetical descriptions, uh, but they are just an indication of the dominant note of the psalm. Now, this is very important to understand. Um, they are not um, absolutely um, fine and clever uh, uh, descriptions of the, of the psalm technically, but they just are a key to its dominant trend. Um, that's very interesting because, you see, some that are called psalms have an awful lot of prayer in them. 
And some that we are called a prayer have a lot of praise. And a praise, as uh, 145 instances, is called a praise. It has an awful lot of instructions. Uh, so you see, this is an important point. And moreover, we have actually a scriptural authority for this. For you remember last week we discovered that some psalms are repeating. Well, in one place they're called a psalm, in another place they're called a mixture. Another place is called So it is obvious that these are not uh, fine uh, descriptions, fine poetical uh, descriptions and definitions, uh, so much as a key to the, um, the dominant mood and trend uh, of the psalm. What are, do we find generally? Well, we
George Matheson, on the other hand, never was He never wrote with any idea. He wrote it just because he could not. He sat down, the boat in the heart stand, and he put into black and white something that appeared in his heart. And it was only years after that it came to to us. Um, there were 99 priestly lay, lovely old and all the Bible. It was all the Bible. It is written by Mr. Peter, uh, many languages, but when she learned the most tragic of the death of the blood, in Canada, when he went out drunk and died at Frostbite in the night. And they prayed, 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 She was so broken up that she went away into a room and no one ever knew what she was. It was published in a national newspaper, and when dear old Sankey was going up to Birmingham in a train, he couldn't think what he was going to sing that evening. He took up the newspaper and he saw it, and he said, This is it, and immediately the tube came to Because of that, he felt it. So into our hymnalist came the hymn, the old Bible hymn, the national But do you see the difference? Now, a microphone was written at the very outset expressly for the people of God at last. Now we have another term called the mixtape. This is only used six times, and you will find it in Psalm 56 as an example. A mixtape of David. A mixtape. What's the mixtape? Well, there have been many, many, just, just much discussion about this word mixtape, but such a circle, I think, is probably the most sane, reasonable of all. And he says that he believed original thought and philosophy behind what he said was in its original meaning something that was privately written in sorrow or distress or joy, but which was later publicly searched for the instruction of now, it's interesting that most of them it comes to date. And if you read them, you will discover that they're intensely personal. That they may well be the key to the mixture. Just like Oswald, the were 99. Oh, love the Oswald, let me go. They were written out of deep personal experience, but later they were circulated amongst the people of God uh, and came to have a real message and uh, to be a consolation to men. Then we find... Um, the term, the literary description, a prayer. This is used five times. Psalm 17 is the best example of that, a prayer. Um, it's quite clear. We don't have to, I think, explain what a prayer is. Uh, then 145, we find Psalm 145 is another description, only used once in the Psalter, a praise. A prayer, a doxology. People call it doxology. And it's interesting that this psalm was one that was sung as a doxology with all the great speeches. A prayer. That was this description. And lastly, and this is a very, very interesting, a very interesting way to close here, I expect you're thankful, um, a shagayal. 
You will find that in Psalm 7. What's the Shukai? Only used once in the Psalter. But here is the interesting thing. In Habakkuk 3, you have a psalm written by Habakkuk. And he has also written, and he's called it a Shigai. Actually, he's called the Shigai, which is the plural of Shigai. Now, what does it mean? Well, it has the most interesting upon which scholars have been divided for a long, long time. On one side, it means to elevate, to exalt. The others say, no, it doesn't. It means to wail. To wail. A loud, bitter, wild cry. So that you get all the scholars evenly uh, on either side, uh, evenly sort of balanced. Some say this is a wild, passionate, unrestrained, travelling cry. That's the description. Something that can't be held in. It just bursts out of a man's being. The other says, no, it is a lofty, almost energy, the exaltation. Uh, of the Lord. Now, if you read Psalm 7, you will notice that two things are there. On the one side, there's the most bitter cry from the psalmist. On the other side, there's the calmest grace. Now read Habakkuk 3 when you, well, when you get back. Read Habakkuk 3, and you will discover the same two things are interwoven. The most bitter cry. Oh, he says, what's coming up on us? I tremble. I'm afraid for what I see coming upon the land. And then he ends with this wonderful, though there's no ox in the stall, though the fields don't yield, though there be no wine, and all this, yet will I trust in the Lord. I don't praise him. He talks of having hinds. That's how he ends. So what is the Shagayon? Well, I think it's a very comforting thing. I think it is simply the loud, unrestrained cry of distress and sin. Think about it. I'm glad to think there are one or two of the latest folks who feel that is the good If the two things are actually woven together, anybody Well, there we are. Those are some liter- the literary aspects of the Psalms. I hope that, they, that you haven't found that too technical and too boring. That, that or, if you only were to take it away and think about it and follow it up and ask any questions you want to about it to make it, to make it clearer to you, um, it should give you an insight into the psalm, into their structure, into something of their background, which ought to be able to help you very much to a much more serious and spiritually intelligent understanding of, of their message uh, and of their, of their purpose. Next week, I trust, Lord willing, we will see if we can take the title uh, and the meaning of the title uh, and also the musical aspect. I think you'll be very interested to know what kind of instruments were played uh, with these songs, what was the kind of singing and the rest of it. Have we any clues in the scripture as to how they were sung and the musical atmosphere that surrounded? Well, we'll leave that for next. Shall we just uh, thank you?